Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Vladimir Putin makes a rare foreign trip visiting Beijing to attend the Belt and Road Forum, where he is greeted warmly by Xi Jinping. The two autocratic leaders claimed they were trying to establish a, quote, fairer multipolar world. And following a high-profile visit to Israel amid an escalating conflict in the Middle East, U.S. President Joe Biden gave a primetime Oval Office address in which he also addressed Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, calling for additional aid and saying that Moscow's imperial ambitions do not end there. And oh, by the way, almost lost in all the excitement this week, Ukraine has just received those long-range attack of missiles that Kiev has been seeking for a long time. With the broader geopolitical environment in flux, it's a good time to take stock as Russia's war of aggression passes its 600th day and approaches its 20th month. And I've got just the guests to guide us through it all, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. It's good to see you. Many thanks, Brian. Yep. So, David, we got a lot going on. We got Putin's visit to China. We got Biden's speech. We got the ongoing chaos in the U.S. Congress that's holding up Ukraine funding. The attack is finally arriving. And, of course, uh, the turmoil in the Middle East that's having a knock-on effect on, in, in, in Ukraine that we'll discuss in the second half. So let's take these one at a time. How did you assess Putin's visit to China? one of the few places in the world where he can visit without being arrested, uh, Putin and she appeared to me to be appealing to the global South. Anything else jumped out at you from that from that visit? I, I don't think it met Putin's expectations, to be honest. Um, there was no announcement about the power of Siberia 2 pipeline, and I think that was hoped mm -hmm. for by Putin and the Kremlin. Um, and uh, I think Putin attached much more importance to this trip and visit than she did, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what it reflects is, as you said, Putin is not able to travel to many places. Um, as you know, our media has uh, now ratified the, the Rome Treaty, which means as a signatory to the International Criminal Court, it would be obligated to arrest Putin were he to arrive in Yerevan. Of course, I don't think Putin would be very welcome, welcome in Yerevan these days um, in light of the lack of Russian support for Armenia and the war with Azerbaijan. He was in Kyrgyzstan um, and now he's in Beijing. Look, I, I, I think it is a reflection much more of how isolated Putin is both within his country and on the global stage. He couldn't go uh, to the BRICS meeting in South Africa because South Africa is a signatory to the Rome Treaty. Um, and he's not welcome in most places, frankly. He didn't go to Indonesia for the G20 meeting. So uh, there aren't many destinations that Putin has on his itinerary. Beijing is one of them. And yet I don't think Beijing is all that thrilled with the state of affairs, though he's eager to exploit Russian weakness uh, to China's own benefit. Yeah, the thing that keeps uh, jumping out at me about all of these uh, these meetings between Putin and Xi, a couple of things jump out at me. First, they're very, very high in optics and very, very low in substance. That's that's um, it's almost like the mere fact of this meeting is supposed to be a deliverable. The other is, I mean, and I noticed this, their meeting in, in, in Moscow, the body language was really, really telling. Like, like she was sitting there like Tony Soprano, like a mafia Don and Putin looked like a junior partner. I mean, it was really now that the body language wasn't as, 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 um, as, as explicit this time, but you're right. There was, there was, she said very little about Ukraine. 
Um, it was all kind of trained on these broader things that they can agree with, this opposition to U.S. hegemony. But then there's also this playing to the global self that I think we're going to get into when we talk about the Hamas business in the second half. I mean, what is how do you see the Sino-Russian relationship right now? Because it's um, it seems to, to me to be quickly turning into a junior-senior partner situation. I think there's no question that that's the case. And I think there is growing recognition in Moscow, at least among those who pay attention to this relationship, that Russia is very much the junior partner and that China is in the driver's seat here. Um, I, I, I think there is concern in certain circles. I don't want to overstate this, but concern in inside places in Moscow that China is going to have Russia's lunch here and that this uh, unbalanced relationship will continue into the, into the foreseeable future. There's another uh, visit, another trip that happened this week, though, that I just want to uh, flag that reinforces this point. The foreign minister, Lavrov, was in Pyongyang this week. Right. These are the countries that Russia is relying on. Right. Uh, it's Iran. It's North Korea. It's China. And, of course, these countries can uh, contribute to Russia's ability to do real harm. Um, we, we've seen what Iranian drones have done in the campaign in, in Ukraine. Uh, North Korea has sent uh, train loads of ammunition and other right. material to, to Russia. Um, but when you're reliant on Iran and North Korea in particular, that's not a good sign of where you stand in the global community. Lots of questions about whether China has provided some dual use uh, technology and, and possibly even drones and other things to the Russian effort. But the Chinese seem to be very cognizant of the fact that they do not want to violate these sanctions that are in place and be subject to sanctions themselves. So that makes China, I think, um, a little hesitant to get too far into bed with Russia. But uh, all of this, though, I think, Brian, is a sign that um, Russia doesn't have very many reliable, good friends and, and is, is quite isolated on the global scene. Yeah, I would the, the media uh, kind of coverage because as Biden was going to Israel, Putin was going to to, to China, and there was a, there was a, a bit of media coverage that kind of did this split screen moment of this. This is the new kind of global division that we're seeing in the world. Do you think there's anything to that? I mean, I mean, lines are being drawn right now. They're being drawn in the map of Europe right now. This war is basically about where the lines are going to be in the new normative conflict. I'm, I'm not sure I want to call it a Cold War yet. But then you have the the, the difference between the, North, the, the, the Western countries and the global South and how each views the Israeli-Hamas conflict and the war in Ukraine. Um, our... Is there something to that framing that was in the media this week? I think it was the Times that did a piece kind of making this kind of split screen moment of Biden and Putin. I think there's no question. And, and, and I think even though um, Biden's trip got interrupted with the attack on the hospital, which after some disinformation was shown to have been a misfire from Islamic Jihad, not from Israel, uh, that canceled the meeting in Jordan, um, President Biden is demonstrating, um, I think, some real strong U.S. leadership uh, on the global scene. Visiting Israel, uh, the hug with Netanyahu is not going to be popular in a lot of places. It was mm -hmm. the right thing to do, however. And uh, I think his speech uh, uh, on Thursday night, last night, was also very important. We'll get, get into that a little later, I think. But uh, I, I think Biden has shown some good leadership on this. And I think in, in contrast, Putin looks small. Uh, he looks needy. Uh, he looks like he doesn't have many places to turn to, um, whereas the United States is exercising its leadership as it should. And I think all of these developments are a reminder that, as, and Biden referred to Madeleine Albright last night and uh, referring to us as the indispensable nation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely right. Russia is not the indispensable nation. No, far from it. Um, and let's, I mean, actually, I want to stick with this uh, for a minute, because one of the things Putin is counting on is that the West is going to tire of 
of, of supporting Ukraine. We have the other story this week that is pretty much a domestic U.S. dysfunction story, the ongoing chaos in the House of Representatives, the Republicans unable to agree on a speaker after after ousting Kevin McCarthy. Um, we've just the third vote, just as I was getting ready to record this, the third vote, uh, McCarthy is now, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Jordan. Jim Jordan is now the, uh, has the least votes ever for a, for a candidate for speaker. Um, but this is, this goes beyond the kind of circus of U.S. politics. Congress can't do anything until the House has a speaker. And Ukraine aid is is waiting. If it comes to the floor, it should pass. I'm pretty I'm reasonably confident it'll pass. But this is precisely what Putin's counting on. If you combine the fatigue that is setting in, I was just looking at some polls on this. Public opinion in the U.S. It used to be 70, 80 percent for supporting Ukraine. It's just barely over 50 now, um, and it, it, it and lower among Republicans higher among Democrats. Um, you add that in with the chaos in the Congress. Is this a dangerous moment right now? Without doubt, in my view, we are the most powerful nation in the world. We are the country that those who are striving for freedom and democracy and human rights in their countries look to, despite all of our failings and shortcomings. And yet we can be our own worst enemies at, at times. And this is one of those times <laughs> where um, the, you look at the global scene. Um, it, this is a, a, an uncertain period um, in our lives. And the House of Representatives, as you said, can't decide on and agree upon a, a, a new speaker. In fact, Jordan's third vote, if I saw the numbers correctly, showed an even bigger drop in support. Yep. He went from 20 in the first vote opposed to 22 in the second and now 25 in the third. Yep. And and so now the question is, what's next? Uh, Patrick McHenry, the congressman from North Carolina, who's Speaker Pro Tem, has indicated he might step down because he's fed up. Um, we need a functioning U.S. House of Representatives. Yep. As you said, to pass this uh, request from the Biden administration of $100 billion that includes $60 billion in assistance for Ukraine. The Senate and the House need to pass this, but as long as there's no speaker, at least according to the interpretation of the current rules, you can't have business before the House until a speaker is actually chosen. So uh, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, there, this under what's happened and what's been happening in Ukraine uh, for uh, not just since February of last year, but for years underscores how serious that situation is. Uh, what's happened in Israel underscores how serious that situation is. The Chinese challenge um, situation with Venezuela and other places. We need a fully functioning government. And uh, so it underscores the urgency that Republicans and Democrats face in the U.S. House of Representatives to get this sorted out. And frankly, the onus is on the Republicans in this case. Yeah, no, and I'm 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 be, I, I'm hoping that I thought the McF the McHenry solution was going to work. Um, I thought that was going to get the Ukraine aid vote to the floor, but I guess we're going to have to wait to next till till next week. We've we've talked about this a bit, like the 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 growing opposition to aid to Ukraine in the Republican Party. It's 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 on the right fringe, but as we're learning right now, that right fringe can make a lot of trouble and throw a lot of gum in the works. Are you worried about this metastasizing? I know in the past we both have been kind of not that worried about it basically my you know the area between the 20 yard lines and the football field is fine um it's just on the fringes and the left has been pretty much brought to heel on this i mean i see that the the, the you're not seeing much opposition from the democratic left from the progressive caucus and others the republican rights a different story do you do you think this can metastasize or is the, the support that's there is it solid and sustainable well i don't think we have any concerns in the senate the, the Senate is solid. There'll be a few members who will oppose. But I think in the Senate, uh, assistance for Ukraine will will pass fairly easily. The problems have always, to the extent that they exist, and they, there are problems, they're in the House of Representatives. And we have seen uh, in, in the agreement to uh, keep the government open, um, uh, Speaker McCarthy, then Speaker McCarthy, agreed to remove the request for Ukraine assistance uh, mm -hmm. during that period. That was a much smaller number than we're talking about today with, with the, the administration's request. And so there has been an increase in opposition in the House of Representatives among Republicans only, you're absolutely right, to assistance to Ukraine. From people who say we should be focusing on China to people who say we need to secure our own border to people who are now saying uh, we should be sending this assistance to Israel, not to Ukraine. 
that said, the key members in the House, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, the, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Rogers, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Turner, the, the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee, Granger, are all in support of assistance to Ukraine. The, the question had always been whether McCarthy would go along with this. And uh, there were fits and starts with him. He, he more than not came down and said, I do support Ukraine. But he also had this problem, as you mentioned, with, with his right flank. Um, I think the uh, call to remove the speaker may backfire on that flank when it comes to other issues. And mm. so I remain cautiously optimistic mm. that assistance to Ukraine can pass. Um, there have been a number of letters that have been generated by various groups that I think will be helpful in underscoring why uh, U.S. assistance to Ukraine is important, why we should provide this assistance, at the same time providing assistance to Israel, which is, uh, we've been reminded how important that is, providing assistance to Taiwan, Taiwan and yep. securing our border. As I said before, we're the most powerful, we're the greatest nation on earth. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think the request by the administration now is to try to get us past these kind of 60, 90 day periods where there need to be votes uh, to continue assistance to Ukraine to essentially get us past the election next year. And um, what I also think was very important, Brian, and we've talked about this for a long time now, was was President Biden's speech last night. Yeah. Um, and he, he then worked in how Ukraine and Israel are, in fact, related um, in this cause to fight against terrorism, uh, to fight against terrorism by the Hamas organization against Israel, again, a, a, a terrorist action by the Russian state, by Putin and the Kremlin. Um, the, the, the horrific, barbaric, a uh, terrorist attack by Hamas against Israelis, uh, beheading babies, um, uh, shooting people on swap, burning their bodies. This is not uh, uh, new, unfortunately and tragically, to Ukrainians. Let's remember Bucha. Let's remember Mariupol. Um, the Ukrainians have been the targets of uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity. And I think it's fair to say genocide committed by Russian forces, committed by Putin. Putin's been indicted by the ICC uh, right. for the abduction of Ukrainian children. I think, frankly, the indictment was too limited. It could have been broader than that. So these, I think President Biden was right to link these. I wish, because you and I have been talking about this for months and months, that he had given this speech about Ukraine much earlier. Yep. By not doing so, he kind of yielded the narrative to the naysayers, those opposed right. to Ukraine, the former Fox News hosts and others. Um, and and now I hope there will be uh, Republican leaders on the Senate, in the Senate, in the House who will say disagree with Joe Biden on pretty much everything, except when it comes to supporting Ukraine right. and Israel and Taiwan and everything. Um, so I, I do think that that speech was effective and useful. Um, I wish it had been done a lot sooner. Israel obviously wouldn't have come up had it been uh, sooner than last night. But um, that was that was an important thing for him to do. And I thought he did it effectively. Um, and it, it was a reminder of why we have an interest in supporting Ukraine. And and these various letters that I referred to, and I've seen some, I'm sure you have too, yeah. making the case for why it's in U.S. national interest to support Ukraine. And President Biden laid it out pretty clearly last night that if Putin were to succeed in Ukraine, he'd yep. keep going. And then we're talking about NATO member states that would be in danger. And because of Article 5, that could implicate us in a military way with, with troops on the ground. Yeah, I thought he did a good job in the speech of kind of threading this needle and it kind of uh, you could see what he was doing, because, as you said, David, earlier, you, the, the naysayers are saying, well, we should be giving this money to Israel. Well, we should be giving this money to Taiwan. Well, so we, we should be giving this money to the southern border. He put it all together into one and said, let's give money to Ukraine. Let's give money to Israel. Let's give money to Taiwan and let's put let, let's have more funding to secure the southern border. I, it's 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 almost like he was appealing to different congressional constituencies to make sure this passes with big bipartisan uh, majorities, which I, I, I think it would if it ever gets to the damn floor. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and look, I think, you know, you, you draw the lines here. Um, uh, Putin and, and Russian officials have hosted Hamas in Moscow. They mm -hmm. don't tr view it as a terrorist organization. Um, they, as far as I know, have not really condemned the terrorist attack. 
you've got Iran support for Hamas and, of course, Hezbollah as well. You've got Iranian support for Russia. You've got North Korean support for Russia, Chinese a little more ambiguous. Um, these regimes are and, and groups are working together. And so it would be like playing whack-a-mole if you just tried to deal with one of these. Right. Uh, it, it, it's incredibly unfortunate that we're in this state, but we are. And we can't just wring our hands and say, woe is us, and decide which one of these we want to pick by going tic-tac-toe. We, we've, we've got to deal with all, with all of these things. It's not to say that we police everything in the world, but we've talked before. Europe is the source of two world wars in the past century, and Ukraine is the largest country in Europe geographically. It's a country of over 40 million people. It is perhaps just as importantly a country where there were two revolutions this century in support of democracy, in support of a Western orientation against corruption. I don't know of another country that has experienced that. And so it seems to me we have an obligation to help the Ukrainian people who are showing tremendous courage and determination and resilience in the face of Russian aggression. And we also need to help Israel. Um, and President Biden, I think, also rightly said we have to help Palestinian citizens, different from right. Hamas. Um, and so, again, is the greatest nation on earth, the most powerful nation on earth. Um, Israel is one of our closest allies. Ukraine is a country we absolutely need to support. Um, Taiwan is a, a, an island democracy that we need to support. And, and again, these connections, if I can, Brian, how yeah, no, we respond to Russian aggression in Ukraine will have a huge impact on President Xi's calculations vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Among Ukraine's strongest supporters are those living in Taiwan. They yeah. want U.S. and European and Western support for uh, Ukraine because they know she is looking at our ability to uh, stay in this, uh, not as long as it takes, but to help Ukraine win. We've talked right. many times right. about that phrase. And actually, I don't think President Biden used that phrase last night, um, but I, I wish he would be a little more explicit about saying we want to help Ukraine uh, until it wins. Um, and, and just very quickly, winning to me is driving every Russian Ukrainian soldier from Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, Crimea. Um, because also that's what Ukrainians want, despite right. the, 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 the horrors of it inflicted on them. By large majorities, Ukrainians still reject territorial compromises, concessions to Putin, um, these, these, any attempt to force negotiations on them. They want to drive Russian occupiers off of their land. Mm -hmm. And frankly, they're the ones doing the fighting. We're helping them by providing the weapons to do so. And it seems to me that's the least we can do. Yeah, we, we did a program last night with Casey Michelle, who wrote an excellent article about how, in fact, Crimea is actually really in play. And that Russia's red lines on Crimea have uh, magically been erased. Um, sticking with this before we move into the second half and talk about the knock-on effects from the war in the Middle East on Ukraine, th th those attackums finally arrived. You, you, if you blinked, you'd almost miss it, right? Um, but the attackums finally arrived. What do you attribute that? too did was this a was this a stealth operation i mean they just suddenly appeared with without it seeming to be telegraphed how did you interpret that and how do you see the effect of this in the battlefield I, i'm i my reaction is one of both pleasure and frustration mm -hmm. uh the the pleasure is look at the impact they've already had mm -hmm. uh where uh, the ukrainians took out uh, i don't know what nine russian helicopters and attacked the air base um, and are inflicting some real damage on Russian forces in such a short period of time when they acquired uh, these attack of missiles. I, I, I know military experts, people much more knowledgeable at the military situation than I am, have said not one weapon system will change the nature and course of this war. Mm -hmm. These attackums are certainly going to have a big impact on on it, and it gives the Ukrainians much greater ability to strike Russian forces deeper in occupied territory. I know the Ukrainians have said they won't use them to strike in Russian territory, but the look, the Russians are having to pull back their forces um, and bring some of them back into Russian proper yep. territory. We've seen um, the move out of Sevastopol with the Black Sea Fleet. Um, this is a problem for Abkhazia and Georgia because the Russians have announced they're going to open a naval base in Abkhazia. Right. That's bad for Georgia. 
but it's a positive reflection of the impact the Ukrainians are having on the Russians' ability to maintain their forces uh, in, in Crimea. And so uh, I, the, the frustration comes from, why didn't we do this sooner? Right. Uh, and, and we've talked many times before, for since February of last year, the Ukrainians have asked for certain weapon systems, and our first answer is no. They ask again, we say maybe. They ask again, and we finally say yes. But in that intervening period of delay, Ukrainians are getting killed. Right. And, and and it's not to put the blame on us because the blame lies in Moscow with Putin and Russia. Um, but it does underscore, had we provided the HIMARS sooner, had we provided uh, the Abrams sooner, had we provided the Attackum sooner, uh, the list goes, the F-16s, F-16s, all of these things. Ukraine's counteroffensive, I dare say, would be much more effective than it has been. But it's also important, President Biden referred to this last night, and Secretary Blinken did uh, when he announced uh, new assistance, I think it was last week, the Ukrainians have regained over 50% of their territory since, right, 7% of Ukrainian territory was occupied before February of last year. It means now that roughly 18% of Ukrainian territory is still occupied by Russian forces. It means the Ukrainians have made tremendous gains since February of last year. We shouldn't be shocked that the final parts of that territory are the hardest to regain. Right. And, and so we shouldn't be shocked that the fighting is more difficult. And we shouldn't be shocked that the Ukrainians were fighting with kind of one hand tied behind yep. their back because they didn't have air superiority. They didn't have these longer range missiles. And so for those who are frustrated about the lack of progress of the counteroffensive, compare it to where things were in February of 2014. Two, mm-hmm. uh, 2022, and where things are now, Ukrainians are absolutely moving in the right direction. The Russians, I, I'll, I'll sum it up this way. I would much rather be in the Ukrainian shoes than in the Russian shoes. And and again, we've talked before about this. Let's not forget the impact of the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive now on Russian morale. Uh, where Russian, you, you still hear more and more reports of Russian forces who have had enough. And if Putin doesn't have the guys on the ground to carry out his orders, then he's an emperor with no clothes. Right. No, and as our as our mutual friend, General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, has said again and again and again, we're asking the Ukrainians to do something. He said, I would never ask my soldiers to do a combined arms operation without not only without air superiority, without air power. Right. And that is something that we'd never ask American soldiers to do. The Ukrainians are doing it. And I think they're doing pretty damn well, given given the circumstances. Well, that's a great place to segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how the Israel-Hamas war and the possibility of it metastasizing is having knock-on effects in the Russia-Ukraine war. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UC McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and I would urge you to also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical as we are trying to build up our following there. We've not forgotten the mass graves. The bodies found bearing signs of torture, rape used as a weapon by the Russians, and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children forcibly taken into Russia, stolen from their parents. It's sick. So as Russia on... 
So as Russia's war in Ukraine enters its 20th month, the Israel, the Israeli Hamas war in the Middle East is now entering its second week amid fears that it could metastasize to involve Lebanon and possibly even Iran. I do not want to go into the minutia of the war in the Middle East, David. Neither of us are, are Middle Easternists. But for our purposes, a conflict, of, a conflict of this magnitude cannot help but have an impact on Russia's war against Ukraine. It's sapping attention. It's sapping bandwidth. It's sapping resources at a time when Ukraine needs all of the above. It's scrambling alliances. Putin is now visibly distancing himself from Israel, which is interesting. This is something I'd like to get into a little bit. Biden tried to thread the needle this week, as I noted earlier, calling on Congress to allocate aid for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. Russia appears to be appealing more to the global south now um, with, its, with its refusal to condemn Hamas. President Biden, of course, made the connection with Iran uh, in these two conflicts. Iran is supporting Hamas and supporting Russia. Um, how do you see events in the Middle East having knock-on effects at influencing the, the Russo-Ukraine war? I, it's, it's, I've been kind of batting this around my head for a while. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest issue is whether um, the situation in the Middle East will distract attention more than it has already from Russia's ongoing uh, aggression against Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That certainly is Putin's hope. He hopes that the world will shift. He hopes that these calls that we hear among a few, I don't want to overstate the number, but among a few in the Congress that we need to focus on Israel, not Ukraine, will grow. I don't think that'll be the case. And I think the administration's budget request of $100 billion and $60 billion for Ukraine, so Ukraine would be getting significantly more than Israel or Taiwan, um, will put that to rest. The, the the main thing is that Putin hopes that this or our political situation or our elections next year will lead to a diminution in our focus and attention on the situation in Ukraine. And what we need to do and make clear, and I think President Biden helped doing this last night, is that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can help and focus on the situation with Israel and provide it with the support it needs. At the same time, we can provide and support and help Ukraine in its uh, efforts to defend itself against this Russian invasion and aggression. So I, I don't think that this will wind up redounding to Putin's benefit at the end of the day. Um, I, I do think that he probably is taking some short-term pleasure in the deflection of attention that it provides. Look at things. Um, he, he never seems to have a, a longer game plan than that. Um, and so uh, we, we just need to make sure that we send the message, we're absolutely going to support Israel. Uh, we will provide humanitarian support to the Palestinians, um, but it's not going to take our eye off the ball when it comes to supporting Ukraine. And, and as we talked already, there, there are clear links to, to all of these things, Iran being at the center of, of this. Um, but um, I, I do think that, that uh, Putin's hopes on this will wind up uh, dissipating. I don't think they'll wind up producing a real gain and plus for Russia. Yeah, no, and Biden's speech, incidentally, I was hearing uh, noises in Washington before the Hamas attack on Israel that Biden was planning a major address on Ukraine. He was. <clears throat> um, and I'm not sure if it was going to be an Oval Office address, but it was a major address. Um, and then, of course, the, 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 the Hamas attack happened, happened days after I had heard that Biden was planning this speech. Um, and, and, and so this was, this was the result of it. One of the things I also wanted to look at was this, um, the, the shifting of alliances here. Now, Putin had studiously uh, courted good relations with Israel throughout his time as president. Um, his, his relationship personally with Netanyahu was actually fairly good. Um, and I couldn't help but being struck, not surprised, but still kind of struck by uh, the, 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 the rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin after the Hamas attack on Israel. There is, I mean, Putin's kind of both sizing it. He's, he's um, you know, decrying the, 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 the bloodshed in the conflict, but he's not, he's not, he hasn't condemned Hamas. Um, and he hasn't expressed any, any support 
that I can remember for, for, for Israel, which struck me as odd given how much he had courted Israel throughout his entire presidency. Is this a major shift now? It seems so, and I think it's a miscalculation on his part. Uh, there has been some tension between Ukraine and Israel over yep. the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, the hope and feeling was that Israel should be much more supportive of Ukraine, having been the victim of in invasions before itself, uh, Israel that is, um, with the Iran connection uh, with the Russian invasion, there was hope uh, renewed that Israel would take a more full-throated approach in support of, of Ukraine. It just hasn't happened. And and part of it, uh, I, as I understand, has been um, Israel's uh, quiet support for Russia's position in Syria to try to mm. keep control over that situation. And if Israel showed too much support for Ukraine, that that could put in jeopardy the, the Russian position in Syria and create more problems for Israel with Syria. Um, to me, I... I I regretted that that Israel has not been more openly on the side of Ukraine. Um, President Zelensky, as you know, uh, offered to visit Israel after the Hamas attack, and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu put him off. Um, so Israel, it seems, continues to try to strike that balance between the two. But I, I can't imagine that among Israelis, uh, the Russian position uh, toward the Hamas terrorist attack has been very welcome. And so uh, Putin may be playing now not to an Israeli audience, but to a wider Arab audience. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's going to pay off all that well for Putin at the end of the day. Yeah, and I also I had read also that Israel was quietly very annoyed at Russia's rhetoric about the Ukraine war, referring to the Ukrainians as Nazis. Um, this is a, of course, a sensitive thing with Israelis that you don't that that that, that was one singular evil, and you, you to 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 try to use it in this very absurd way they thought denigrated uh, the Holocaust. And I I, had, I was reading a piece about that. No, I had not heard that until now, but they said this was kind of bubbling below the surface in the Russian-Israeli relationship right now. But I think you're right, David. I think Israel, I'm expecting a shift toward Ukraine, at, 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 toward, at toward aiding Ukraine. They've not even joined the sanctions yet, which is, um, is, in, yes. is in my understanding. So that's um, an issue. Yeah, and ju just to underscore, Brian, how absurd the Nazi allegations were made by Russian officials, as you and your listeners know all too well. Um, Ukraine actually has a duly elected uh, Jewish president, right? Uh, and it's had a Jewish prime minister. In the ratings by the Anti-Defamation League, it has shown to be one of the least anti-Semitic countries in Europe. Um, it's not to whitewash Ukraine's past that there have been some right. ugly periods uh, in in treating uh, treatment of of Jews. But these days, Ukraine has made enormous strides in this regard. And, um, you know, Putin has been uh, more recently, it seems, uh, in pre-Hamas attack, dabbling in anti-Semitism yes, uh, quite has. openly. And uh, if that doesn't get Israel's back up, then I'm not quite sure what will. But, but would, the Iran yeah. connection should have more than anything, frankly. Yeah, and that's that's one of the areas I wanted to turn to. Before I do that, this this battle for opinion in the global south, and that is tied up, of course, in the in 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 the Hamas war. I mean, Russia is clearly making a play to the global south. That's all he's got right now, right? Yep. He, he's as you pointed out earlier. The the and the U.S. is losing the in the West and Ukraine are all losing this battle for hearts and minds in the global south. I mean, I recall a conversation I had with an, an Indian diplomat friend of mine about this. He was saying, look, we see this as you you Westerners fighting with each other. We don't have a dog in this fight. We're going to continue to buy arms and 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 energy from Russia. Um, and that's India, right? <laughs> um, and so, I mean, we're losing this battle in the global south. Putin is clearly using the Hamas-Israeli war as a effort to like shore up support in the global south. Biden's trying to thread this difficult needle 
separating correctly, separating Hamas from the cause of the Palestinian people, reiterating support for a Palestinian state, getting the deal on aid to flow into Gaza, getting Egypt to open up that border crossing. But it's just not. I mean, you saw the demonstrations across the Arab world this 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 week. Um, everybody is willing to believe uh, the worst about the U.S. in Israel. Is this is this is this one area where Putin does have a trump card? Uh, no pun intended. Um, uh, I, 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 <laughs> he may think so. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, he may think so. Um, but the, the reality is he doesn't have many cards to play. Um, we were just talking before about how few places he can actually travel to. And, and so trying to play the global South card is one of them. It's been fairly effective. Um, but as, as I mentioned earlier, he, he didn't go to South Africa for the BRICS meeting. Why? Because right. the South Africans would have been required to have arrested him. Um, he hasn't visited a lot of these other countries where either they're signatories to the Rome Treaty or they're not. Um, a lot of these places don't want him. Um, but there have been a lot of countries that have taken positions. You mentioned India, uh, South Africa is another, Brazil, that uh, Mexico, that have taken positions that I think have been very disappointing when it comes to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but let's also not forget, it isn't just the global south. We just saw the Hungarian prime minister shaking yep, hands with right. Putin. Uh, the elections in Slovakia are going to be uh, the result bringing Fico back uh, as prime minister are going to present problems as well. Um, and and so we've got our hands full. Uh, the the Orban uh, thing I think is something to really keep an eye on, and uh, he seems to be going out of his way to demonstrate closer ties with Moscow. And remember the EU, which has maintained tremendous unity when it comes to sanctions and and assistance. Hungary is always the big question mark. Now you'll have Slovakia as a possible yep. question mark as well. So it's not just the global south that we need to keep an eye on. It's some members, if you will, in the family as well that need a careful eye too. Yeah. Now we got a we got a nice boost in Poland uh, last weekend with uh, with, yes. with, with the, the Civic Platform and the Alliance. They're winning that election. Donald Tusk is probably going to be the new prime minister, is my guess. Um, Poland wasn't that was never problematic on the Ukraine issue. They were problematic on other issues, uh, but they were also problematic inside the EU, basically supporting Orban on other kind of democracy issues. So we're probably and Poland's a you know a big important European state that has that carries a lot more weight with all due respect to Slovakia than Slovakia, right? So um, no so question. That that election I saw is a big. I would have liked to have have had a twofer. I would have liked to have seen Slovakia have a, have a, have a, have a similar result. But we didn't uh, we didn't get it. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Russia Iran, the big the big elephant in the room, right? Because this is truly the, you know this axis of rogues. Um, and President Biden correctly pointed out in his speech about this that yeah, Iran is supporting Russia. And Iran is supporting, of course, Hamas. And simultaneously, simultaneously, Israel's getting attacked by other proxies of Iran in the Middle East at the at, at, at the moment. This can this be problematic going forward? I mean, this is this is Russia and Iran have always had cordial relations, but they are kind of they seem to be moving to a new level now. Um, unlike in the Sino-Russian relationship, Putin doesn't have to play junior partner here, although he does need the Iranians very badly right now, and the Iranians are leveraging that. How do you see that this whole Russia-Iran axis? Well, not only can it be problematic, it is problematic. Right. Uh, you're talking about Iranian support, not just for Hamas and Islamic Jihad, uh, but also for Hezbollah in, in, in southern Lebanon, and we've seen concerns there. Uh, for uh, militias and others in, in Iraq as well. Um, Iran is a huge problem. And let's be clear, the Iranian regime is a huge problem here. It's the, the regime that we have the problem with. And um, I, I think there's there's no question that uh, there's going to be pressure to get tougher on, on Iran. We, we've seen now uh, the freezing of the $6 billion that was supposed to have been transferred uh, the, to Iran in exchange for the release of those hostages. Uh, that now has been put on hold. Uh, there's growing calls in the U.S. Congress to get tougher with Iran. I mean, we already have a lot of sanctions on Iran. 
Um, but I, I think just as importantly, you look at the Russian-Iranian relationship and you see it underscores what a danger the Putin regime is because it turns to a regime like that in Tehran uh, for drones and other weapons and systems to use against Ukraine. And, um, you know, I know people don't like to hear the axis of evil reference, but we are seeing an axis of, of evil here. And it's now Russia, Iran and North Korea. Uh, China, I wouldn't put quite in that category yet. One of the things that the Russia-Iranian uh, relationship, this 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 axis of evil, as we say, as we can revive that term, what it again brings up, David, is something you and I have talked about again and again and again and again. Iran is designated by the United States as a state sponsor of terrorism, and correctly so. Um, given the close Russian relationship with Iran, should I mean, shouldn't this kind of give new impetus to calls to designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism? I know the administration is reluctant to do this because all kinds of diplomatic measures kick in when that happens. Um, I don't think we can have diplomatic relationship uh, relationship, for example, with somebody who was designated a state sponsor of terrorism. And so I know the administration is reluctant to go there for those reasons and that's fair enough that's legit what is there anything we could do shy of that that i mean i know we've designated like wagner an international criminal organization but are are there things we can do along these lines both symbolic and real that can that that that, that would kind of accentuate this because it's it's russia's basically aligned with a state that is designated by the U.S. as a state sponsor of terrorism, not just one, but two, North Korea, too. Look, not only that, um, Russia, I, I think it's fair to say, has engaged uh, in terrorist attacks against Ukraine. Uh, President Biden referenced this last night. Right. Um, what, what happened in Bucha, what happened in Mariupol, the, these dropping of, of bombs on hospitals and apartment buildings and schools and so on. That's what terrorists do. Uh, is seizing Ukrainian citizens and forcibly taking them into Russia. Uh, that's what Putin got indicted for by the ICC. Um, and so I, I think I think certainly Russian behavior has been terrorist uh, behavior. However, we just saw another reason why the administration will be reluctant to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism this week when a dual citizen working for RFERL yep. uh, has been arrested, had her passport taken. Um, there are American citizens being illegally and improperly held as hostages in Russia. And the concern is that if we designated Russia as a state sponsor of terror, uh, then then efforts to secure their release would would fall apart. Um, but I think there's there's no question that um, Russia has been engaging in terrorism toward Ukraine. It has used banned substances on uh, people living in Europe, uh, referring specifically going back to Litvinenko when he was poisoned with polonium in 2006, uh, use of Novichok against uh, uh, Skripal uh, in the UK as well. Um, uh, possibly poisoning of, of a number of people you and I uh, both know right. uh, in various parts of Europe. So, uh, I mean, Russia's using substances that are banned, that, that are incredibly dangerous. Um, and so it, it, its actions really are kind of terrorist in nature. Um, but I, like you, I do understand the reluctance of moving ahead. Um, but... Uh, Boy, it, it, it's it's it also I, I'd say this, Brian, too, is, you know, there are people out there who are arguing we need to prepare for better relations with Russia one day yep. um, who, who say that uh, I just saw this in foreign affairs two weeks ago, an article by Tom Graham arguing that. We need to try to pull Russia away from China because Russian Chinese uh, rapprochement would be bad for us. Um, so that means what? In, in Graham's argument, it was doesn't Russia doesn't have to withdraw from Ukraine. It doesn't have to pay reparations because if we insisted on all that, then reaching out and, and resuming normal relations with Russia uh, wouldn't be possible. Um, let's be serious here. We are not going to have normal relations with Russia as long as Putin is in power. And we may not have normal relations after Putin is gone from power unless and until 
all Russian forces are off Ukrainian territory unless they respect the rights of all of their neighbors, sovereignty and territorial integrity and independence. That means Georgia uh, occupation of 20% of the territory there. Transnistria with Moldova, right. stop supporting Lukashenko in Belarus uh, and stop interfering in, in our elections and, and Europeans' elections and others. It, it, it's it's a thuggish criminal and arguably even a terrorist regime uh, that is causing enormous havoc in the world and collaborating with horrible regimes, like-minded regimes in places like Iran and North Korea. And that should be a wake-up call to us that th those who call for, I dare say, a reset with Russia, a different kind right. of reset, are, are um, delusional, quite frankly. Yeah, I'm not surprised to see that coming from Tom, I, although I, 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 I wish I, I hadn't. Um, and David, I'm also glad you mentioned uh, Alsu uh, Kromasheva, who's my former colleague at Radio Free Europe, a, a friend. Um, her husband, Pavel Butorin, is a, is a good friend of mine. He's been a guest on this podcast in the past. Um, and we know our, our thoughts are, are, are with, with Alsu and um, in my, within my former colleagues at RFE. It's just the latest hostage that, that, that Russia has seized. My understanding is she had to go back home. She's from Kazan. Um, she had to go back home for a family emergency, and she was seized yep. at the airport. Um, yep. And she has U.S. citizenship. So I actually hope that the, the – I'm certain the U.S. government is, is on this. Um, I'm just worried we're going to have another like a uh, hostage exchange. We're going to have to send Russia another arms dealer or cocaine dealer or whatever it is they they yep. want back in each of these situations. But yeah, our, our thoughts are are with Al Su and her family and her colleagues. Um, Paul Whelan, Evan Gorshkovich, uh, yep. uh, Mark Fogel. Uh, unfortunately, there's there are far too many there, and you know it's a it's a reminder to people um, if you don't need to go to Russia, don't do it. Uh, no, it's not a smart time to be there. Yeah, no, that 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 is that is very true. Well, that kind of basically pushes up against the uh, up against the end here. That's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I would like to remind you: you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served as assistant. And Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. David, thank you as always for an enlightening discussion, making me and our reader, our listeners a whole lot smarter. Brian, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Same here. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitter, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and I would also urge you to follow us on our new feeds on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical as we're trying to build up our following there. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.